Thomas McNeely is today's guest on Effing Shakespeare. The author of the coming-of-age novel Ghost Horse and former Houstonian talks about growing up writer in this weird city of ours. Also, we uncover how an education complete with broadsword training can really send you down some effing rabbit holes. And it's finally confirmed again, Houston's food scene is unparalleled. That's what we do here, folks. Just like Insider Baseball, we keep tabs on all the important stats in the writing industry. Hello. (laughs) Breakfast at Tiffany's had a drawing of this young woman in a a negligee, and I thought, okay, I I want to read this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And thus, a writer was born. (laughs) Put pictures of women in negligees on the book. (laughs) On top of every book you want your kid to read. Right. Yes. <laughs> Wait, I didn't even hear. I didn't hear the answer to that question. He said the right Astros. one. Astros. Oh. Well, I mean, the Red Sox aren't even true. But you just needed to know where his, you know, his, his loyalties lie. Loyalties lie, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. We first met our next guest at the Write Fest conference at Rice University and found we had all sorts of connections, as writers in this weird industry often do. He grew up in Houston like I did and has ties to Boston, where Jess lives and teaches now, and they both teach in Boston. So we were more than happy to showcase his work and chat with him here on the show. From the gorgeous and yet tangled up in dirt realities of short stories, like his Sheep, published in The Atlantic, to his novel Ghost Horse that dissects the irredeemably messed up process of becoming a teenage boy in a broken home beset on all sides by even more broken societal systems. Brutality justified by marriage, institutionally enforced racism, poverty. McNeely adroitly captures the rough edges of these lives we live. You don't read McNeely so much as read the world and its rigid systems of belief, how they rub up against puncture, punch the soft flesh of its humanity. And yet, as I hope we'll explore more today, the stories he tells are not without hope, for there are readers who read them. He writes not to condemn us, but to ask us to look deeply, to confront, possibly even to rectify. We're excited to host him on the show and so grateful for his work. Thomas McNeely, welcome. Thank you. That was a fantastic, very flattered by that introduction. Thank you. Well, it was our privilege to get to dive deep into your work. We both read Ghost Horse, and I guess I'd I'd love to ask you first about that story idea and maybe just give us a little background about that novel. It started out as a short story that I couldn't contain as a short story. And I tried for a year or two to contain it within a short story because I'm I'm not really, I think by temperament, a a novelist. And, uh, but I could, (laughs) I guess I'm sort of lazy too. And I didn't, I didn't want to 
write, you know, a 300-page novel. So I, I did everything I could to avoid that. <laughs> but it, it started out in a, in a very, very different form. The, the gender of the protagonist was different. Uh, it was an entirely different situation. I wrote the first draft of it when I was a fellow at the Dobie Pisano Ranch hmm. in, I guess that was 2000. And I don't, I, I don't know whether if I hadn't had that like four months to do nothing else except to write that novel, I would have gotten through the first draft. Hmm. And then I spent the, the next embarrassingly long period of time you know, the, the 10 years plus it's reworking not embarrassing. it. It shows such dedication and passion and obsession. Uh, uh, obsession, <laughs> obsession, <laughs> obsession, I think is, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you're talking to people who, that's, you know, that's our love language. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that it was a long process of writing it. I found the the most difficult part of writing it was to get the to capture the point of view of mm. what to try to be on the one hand authentic to a, an 11 year old child's point of view and on the other hand to make that interesting and relevant to an adult reader so and there were issues in the book that I that were adult issues that had to do with the politics of that time in the, in the 70s in Houston that I wanted mm -hmm. to make clear in the book. And so that was really the, the challenge of, of writing it, that and also that I am kind of plot challenged and it was yes. Yeah. So it was a, uh, it was challenging in, in many respects. And I've, since that time, I've gone back to writing short stories. I think I was chastened by that experience. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you could help us out, Tom. I think that Jess and I could definitely put together like the writer DSM manual so we could <laughs> sort of help authors <laughs> diagnose their their own kind of like pitfalls but i've never heard anyone call it plot challenge i like that <laughs> well it was it was it was at least i think of myself that way I, I but there's a lot of plot in it i mean there's a lot of a lot of stuff happens in it so i guess i don't know maybe it wasn't so plot I'm not so plot challenged as I thought. Who knows? Anyway. Well, and I think it's one thing to diagnose it while you're in the middle of the long slog, but hopefully when it comes together at the end, as yours does, it, it doesn't feel that way anymore. You know, I feel like you did have a lot of, of characters too coming in and out of that plot that had big moments. So I think it leads me to another question too, which was about sort of your experience of 1970s Houston and maybe what has changed and what hasn't changed. You know, I'm thinking mm. about our protagonist, Buddy, and his Latinx friend, Alex, who lives kind of, you know, just across the track, so to speak, but just on the, you know, on the east side, if I understood the geography mm -hmm. of Houston, where we were positioned. So I'm just sort of wondering about your, how that influenced you as a writer, as you wrote this story, sort of the question of, 
those relationships that you that Buddy had, you know, with you know his Latinx friend, and then going to his very white private school that was paid for by his grandmother, and how that still very much is a part of the Houston landscape. Yes, I mean, I, I grew up on the East Side. I grew up in Eastwood. I was one of the few children in that neighborhood who didn't who, who spoke English as a first language. Wow. Most of the white people there were older retirees from Hughes Tool. Um, mm. and they had either they were either dying off or moving out and the Latinx middle class, kind of rising middle class, was moving in. Mm-hmm. So I, I was in this very, uh, very mixed, uh, ethnically mixed atmosphere where I grew up, and that is one of the things that is true in the in the book that I went to this really bizarre school near Meyerland. I will not name it, but probably people can figure out what it is. And I, uh, if anything, I downplayed the strangeness of that school. It was, they had a... Oh, wow. Mar, they had a, a whole kind of fiction that they were a, a Scottish boarding school of the 19th century and oh a, pipes, a, a pipes and drums corps and <laughs> they played soccer and we had to learn to sword dance and all of this <laughs> insane stuff. <laughs> And it's like this whole kind of charade going on. And then across the street, there was a a shopping mall. It was very weird. (laughs) And I learned grammar from the McGuffey's Reader. And we read Pilgrim's Progress. And it was was really weird. But I later learned learned that this is apparently sort of a, a coded for racial purity. Sure, yeah. This this Scottish mummery that they were involved in was this was this play of racial purity, and and they were the school was in fact founded in the late sixties as a, a schismatic sect from the the Episcopalian Church. <laughs> Great. They didn't want to allow integration into mm. the church. Which is a concept barely navigable by an adult, and then you throw these eleven, <laughs> these unsuspecting eleven-year-olds in the midst of all of this history and long-standing uh, unmined yeah. racism, and then like, you know, here, kids, go at it, <laughs> figure this out. It, it was too. It was. It was. It, it was too much for the book. It, it was just, it, it was like, I, I couldn't figure out some way to make it even plausible because it was so bizarre. It would, it would have sort of taken over the, over the, it's like too strange to write about mm-hmm. yeah. uh, within that, within that, there was an, already enough strange stuff going on within that book. And, right. but it was, it, you're right. I mean, it was, no, I, I certainly didn't understand it when I was a kid. I just thought these people were insane. <laughs> and, well, that's one way that's <laughs> We, I mean, I went from a, I went from a, a neighborhood where everybody was mm-hmm. Latinx. And, and it's not that the, 
there was a very strict division, I have to say, between the Latinx world and the white world as far as the two worlds did not mix in the in the level of like the families Mm -hmm. but in day-to-day life it it was a lot of interaction Mm -hmm. and then i went to a place where they just seemed like they'd never (laughs) yes they and and uh, they were very um while i'm going on about this they were also very anti-semitic as well um great just throw that in there of course right of course yes so anyway it it was it it seemed like it was too weird for the for the book but i was saying that some of that is in there not maybe you know not that to the extent that they were of the experience that you had at the school but but the heart of the story is these 11 year old boys who are in the midst of these systems that have been imposed upon them in a lot of ways and and trying to exist underneath those kind of suffocating sort of rigid belief systems while at the same time trying to just figure out how to grow up Mm -hmm. and i i really respected that sort of i think there even though there were so much so many moments of brutality in the midst of this i just felt a lot of tender that you had a lot of tenderness for for the boys even in the moments of you know even in their worst moments i that's really well thank you because that was something i was really interested in doing in the in the book was exploring the formation of, of white privilege and mm-hmm. what it seemed to me looking back on it there's sort of a, a brutalization of and when i say white kids i put that in quotation marks there was a just an editorial in the new york times about how indian american teenagers had attacked the much younger black children and the editorial was about how the Indian American children, I think second generation or maybe first generation, were kind of were performing whiteness. In other words, the way to perform whiteness is to exert power through violence over mm-hmm. someone who is less empowered than you are. Right. And I think that was it, it was certainly the case at that that school that they were in this constant sort of state of, of siege that they were being attacked by the you know the feminists and the communists and the secular humanists and the Jews and everybody else. But it also it translated it's kind of you know absurd, but on the other hand it translated into this way of 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 brutalizing the kids and certainly it it became I saw that played out in very in, in very personal ways and in, inside the families and certainly in their attitudes towards Latinx or, mm-hmm. or African-American people they didn't, who they never had any contact with. So it was not a friend of mine from there said, you know, that what's happened with, with Trump is that these people who had, you know, at the time, at that school, were sort of on the on the fringes. Have now entered more into the mainstream, mm-hmm. 
I think that's unfortunately true. I was very interested in how that kind of the subject formation of a, a white middle-class subject in Houston, Texas in the 70s was formed through this process of kind of violence. And, and it was a very economically uh, tense time in, in, in that neighborhood around in East Side and, and Telephone because the, the Latinx middle class was moving in and the whites were very alarmed mm-hmm. by this. They saw themselves losing economic and, uh, and political power. Mm-hmm. So there's, I think there's quite a straight line you can draw from that time to, to now, unfortunately. And I, I mean, the, the same thing was going on in Boston in the 70s, right? And yes. in lots of other places. But I do feel like Boston has that sort of famous narrative of white flight and riots in the 70s. I don't know if we have a weird Scottish, <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I, I bet I bet if it wouldn't take much looking to find it. But apparently the Scottish thing is a, is the thing in the South. Is that this is coded specifically in the American South? That they have this like lovely thing where I lived in Edinburgh and she lived in Ireland and we actually overlapped in Edinburgh before we even met. We have this like (laughs) romantic narrative. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what's coded. (laughs) I know that it's nothing. Whatever the city full of people of lots of colors. Jess, I never told you about my sword dancing. <laughs> I forgot. Wow. Well, you can, you can still feel good about all that of because course, it's just you know this is just a, a fantasy, the historical fantasy. Yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, could we could we hear a little bit of your writing? I understand you have maybe some new stuff you can share. This is a beginning of a, a short story that you mentioned that you liked, Tickle Torture, mm-hmm. which is published quite a while ago but I like the beginning of this story so if you don't mind I can I can read that beginning to the story that'd be lovely Great. I love it too. <laughs> tickle torture since they left Houston that summer Hugh and his mother had traveled in a long slow circuit as far as Amarillo then worked their way down through El Paso and San Antonio and Austin seeing sights Hugh had no desire to see, and in which he doubted his mother had any really interest in her. For a month, he had collected brochures in the bottom of his duffel bag. They had visited the Alamo, the Helium Monument, Dinosaur Valley, Prairie Dog Town, as well as museums, the Dr. Pepper Museum, the Santa Claus Museum, the Texas Prison Museum, the Border Patrol Museum, the Confederate Air Force Museum, and the Buddy Holly Statue and Walk of Fame. Currently, they were near Galveston on their way to see the third oldest ship afloat. It didn't really matter where they went. His mother looked through everything as if she didn't quite know where she was. Hugh wondered whether she had kept her job at the hospital and how they were paying for the trip and when, if ever, they would go to Corpus. He did not want to go back to Houston, where his father still haunted their house like a ghost. 
Each summer, Hugh and his parents had taken their week-long vacation in Corpus Christi, where his cousins Cecilia and Amian lived. Aunt Beatrice, their mother, was his father's sister. This year, Hugh's mother said she didn't want to deal with Aunt Beatrice and all the questions she would ask. In their motel room near Galveston, his mother brushed her teeth and washed her face, chiding her father in the mirror. To keep from listening, Hugh turned on the TV. The voice his mother used in the mirror had nothing to do with anything she'd said to his father since he'd left last fall. Hugh changed into swimming trunks and a t-shirt, noticing, even in the room's dim light, how dirty they were. He propped himself up against a headboard and tried to remember the last time his mother had washed his clothes. As usual, they were sharing a room because his mother wanted to economize. When there was only one bed, like now, some motel clerks offered to set up cots, but most didn't bother. His mother glided past the TV. One minute, Mary Tyler Moore was there, then a silhouette of his mother's plump body. Her nightgowns were blue and thin. They seemed made not of fabric, but of smell, a warm, sweet odor of cold cream and sweat and flesh. She raised the stiff bed covers and settled herself next to him. I still don't see why we can't go, he said. Please, honey. His mother laid her hand across her forehead and shut her eyes. We've been over this a thousand times. If Daddy was here, we'd go. Hugh said this not because he believed it, but to nettle her. Everything was better when Daddy was around. We didn't drive all day and see boring things and stay in crummy motels. We were normal. His mother shielded her eyes. The sun was brighter, the sky bluer, and you never had to go to school. That's right. We floated through life on a pink perfumed cloud. Hugh laughed, but his throat ached as it did when he cried. A pink perfumed cloud, his mother said, glancing at him, tweaking his armpit. Laughing, he squirmed away from her. It didn't feel like it used to when they had sat on her bed, eating animal crackers and watching TV, waiting for his father. Then, tickling had been a kind of relief. Now it felt as if his mother were trying to make him believe he was happy. Mm. She noodled his ribs, and he batted her hands away. Honey, she said, what's wrong? I told you. Do you really want to go? I told you, he said, hiding his face from her. Yeah, I really, really love that story. <laughs> it's really painful, but really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, had, I asked this question later, but... I feel like since you read it, I might as well bring it up, which is mm -hmm. what there, I just feel like there aren't enough stories perhaps about um, one parent and one child. And of course, now that I say that, I can like maybe think of some others, but um, what is it about homing in on this, you know, one parent, one child in this case, a mom and a son that is or was in the story narratively appealing and rich for you? Um, I think at it, it, the time, it was because that was, I was thinking about my own childhood, mm -hmm. and uh, that story was written quite a while ago. I am writing now about different characters, um, but I, and, and not all of my stories are, are about uh parent-child relationships, but I'm drawn to them 
I'm not really sure why. I mean, there's kind of a, a richness there and complexity. It, it sort of makes me think of the directive or the idea that you put your characters in a room and don't let them leave. Yes. <laughs> and I that's that. how let it me is. say that's my version of an action movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Characters in a room talking. That is absolutely my favorite version of an action movie. <laughs> yes. I can't stand most. That's called a podcast. <laughs> just it's called a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> No wonder. No yeah. Wonder. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it's, um, it's that, but it, you know, and, and there are lots of good hotel room scenes with, um, you know, married people or lovers or whatever, but there's just something about um, one child and one parent because it's love, but it's not romantic love. And right. There's, you know, all this closeness, but it's not romantic closeness, and it's all this conflict, but not romantic conflict. It's just a, a cool way of, you know, coming at all that a bit slant, you know? Absolutely. And there's uh, one of my teachers, um, Pamela Painter, said that is as soon as you have a child in a story, there's an immediate sense of danger. Mm. Yes. That is so and, true, right? And yeah. that is, it sort of raises the the stakes or the temperature yeah. uh, instantly. I had the great good luck to hear Joy Williams read her story, Escapes, uh, about the child who's sort of take caring for her mother, who's a, a hopeless drunk. And they go to a magic show, and the mother goes outside to drink in her car. And you're you're thinking, please, please don't let her desert the child there in the mm. theater. Mm -hmm. And then she does the even worse thing of, like, going up and trying to become part of the magic show. <laughs> oh, my word. Um, and it's, it's such a painful mm -hmm. but tender I, i'm thinking about what you said about it, the painful yet very tender mm -hmm. story because you can feel the the mother's love for the child and the child's care love for her her mother and but it's all just so um uh, twisted mm -hmm. and and painful did your your writing about families and, and parents and children in particular change after you had your own child you have you have a daughter yes yes i do uh, yes i i sort of looked back at my earlier stories and thought my god how self-pitying <laughs> <laughs> you were you know th there's a definitely another point of view that you're not taking into account here <laughs> now that you've been in the trenches of raising <laughs> Yes, exactly yeah. uh. and i think some of the well the stories i've been writing since then have been from the parents point of view some of them and or taking into account the parents point of view and so i think it's i think it's made the made the stories i don't know whether better but more balanced than they than they were before that's that's for sure I mean, I was kind of a weird kid, and I, I read, I got a hold of, my, my grandmother 
my mother's mother, not formally educated, very formally educated, but she was a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. And so I had access to these little 25 cent, you know, dime store editions of all of Truman Capote and George Orwell and James Joyce. And I think those are, I mean, my earliest literary influences, I guess you could say, are are those like are, are this little not books? Not George. Not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I just, I like I said, I was a weird kid, and um, I was very interested in making movies when I was a kid. And so I think I went from being interested in movies into like reading Truman Capote. But I, and I think he's, you know, one of the great prose stylists of his second half of the 20th century and in, in, in American writers. And Joyce's short stories are. Mm. I go back to them again and again and again. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this this all makes me feel happy or sad about all of the careful curating I'm doing in my kids' reading libraries. Like, <laughs> I just need to like toss some things on the side and and maybe they'll stumble upon them because it 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 does sort of there's kind of a a mysterious thing that happens that your kid just finds the thing that they're going to gravitate towards and it has very little to do with careful planning you know there was something wonderful about that uh, about the library that my grandmother had Mm -hmm. sure which was breakfast at tiffany's had a drawing of this young woman in a a negligee and I thought okay I I want to read this (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) and thus a writer was born (laughs) put pictures of women in negligees (laughs) (laughs) on top of every book you want your kid to read right yes (laughs) Tom how did you find your way to is it Javal Press um, I, I had a lot of, I, I had a lot of trouble selling that book, which probably is, is no surprise. It, it, and it was it, not a great time in the publishing industry when I, when I started to try to sell it, but. Was that the book is dead times? Yes. That was the, <laughs> an, another one of the book is dead yeah. <laughs> We should name these the the 2014 wave. I don't know which wave that is. Is that right? Yes, I guess so. The 2014 or around. I mean, although it started a lot longer, it like crashed, didn't it? I had quite a bit of trouble selling it, and I entered it in the Cheval Press Novel Contest, and won the contest and I will be forever grateful to Robert Giron and Jeval Press for publishing uh, that book it it really um, I, I'd almost given up on the on the possibility of, of publishing it so despite the fact that you'd had some nice bylines already and and published some successful short stories yeah 
Yes, I think it's a hard sell. A, a 300-page novel from the point of view of an 11-year-old boy is... Publishers were also kind of confused as to whether it was YA or not. Some of the models that I had in mind for it were books like Other Voices, Other Rooms, mm -hmm. uh, or The Member of the Wedding, which, I, I you know, are those YA books or are they adult books? They're, I don't, they kind of straddle both worlds. I mean, you can read them with pleasure as an adult or as uh, an adolescent, I mm. think. So I mean, what about the lovely bones, right? I mean, that was, wasn't that narrated by a, a oh, yeah. girl or something? Yeah, a young girl. And, but it was adult, you know, they finally labeled it adult, but I, I don't know that the, I mean, it matters to the publishers for sure, because they have to know where to put it on the shelf, but you're right yeah. in that either group could enjoy and learn something from the text either way the whole process of publishing the book and selling it going out and promoting it was and i say this with no not casting any aspersions on cheval press at all because they were great but it was one of the most depressing experiences of my oh no life because it made clear to me what I should have realized from the beginning, which is that a book is like, you know, it could be a bar of soap for all that, that, uh, that it matters as, as far as like something that needs to be marketed and it has to be identifiable and right be relatable and all of that kind of right. thing. And it, it, Ghost Horse was just a really weird kind of twisted up, book and it was a very personal book and it was I, I didn't quite know what to say about it a lot of the time and so it, it was it was difficult I appreciate you sharing that because I think you know people who really want their books published think okay so it took a long time but you finally won the contest and finally got published and everything is going to be rosy afterwards because you finally have gotten what you wanted and if it took two years or 20 you know it's I don't know I really appreciate your your honesty about it because it could be a lark and you could be you know a darling and, and get you know the limo treatment and and all of that or you know whatever it is it's it is still a bar of soap to to the company <laughs> so yeah I, I really appreciate your honesty it, and I say this again without any kind of, of course, you know, with any kind of snobbery, because James Joyce, speaking of James Joyce, <laughs> was a master at marketing mm -hmm. his work. He put a lot of effort into that. And everyone whom I've seen who has gotten the limo treatment, it's not that they're prostituting their art but they yeah. understand that it is something that needs to be marketed and right. and so i don't think that those successes happen in by mistake i mean it, it, you have to kind of write a write towards that communicating with an audience in that way and placing your book in that way it, it doesn't happen. Although Ulysses was not written towards an audience. <laughs> like, 
Well, it, it, it was written towards the audience of the uh, continental intellectual avant-garde, and it was certainly marketed in, in that way. He was, he was very smart about how he positioned his work. Yes. Um, I mean, even his comment about putting obscure things in for the for the literary theorists to mull over for centuries. For centuries, you know? yes. right, right. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think yes. it's part of a larger conversation that we're always we're always interested at I think Shakespeare and and Bloomsday about you know art in a capitalist society. You know, mm-hmm. art, art, the relationships between art and business, and not that it's it's always terrible or that there's something sullied or, you know, embarrassing or, or devaluing about it, but just that it is a dynamic and um, it's, it's an interesting one with, with its, you know, triumphs and pitfalls and, and all of that, but even not even thinking about the highs and lows, just the fact that it is this dynamic and, and a lot of writers both don't admit to the, you know, strange aspects of the dynamic or, um, you know, it just doesn't seem to be part of the conversation a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something that we're interested in bringing forward. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. A, it's a real disservice. I, I teach at Emerson College and the students are told, you know, you should write to express yourself and uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, yeah, you can sit there in your room and express yourself till the cows come home. But <laughs> if it, it it's not gonna, you have to learn how to communicate with a with an audience in a in a way. And I think that's a, it's a it's a disservice that's done to students to not to not tell them that they have to. Consider the market at some point. Consider consider the market, and that doesn't mean like changing necessarily changing what you're going to do in some fundamental way, but it, it it's part of the creation of the art, I think. Well, Tom, can we impose on you for a few more minutes and ask you some some quick oh, sure. questions? Our category sure. this season is opposites like art and commerce. Okay. <laughs> so okay. maybe. Okay, so here's the first question. If you moved back to Houston, what would you miss about Boston and vice versa? What do you miss about Houston while you're in Boston? If I moved to Houston, I would miss public transportation. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Seasons, I would miss seasons other than the hot and the less hot. We, um, Tom, we got all the seasons yesterday. Okay, so is that right? Yeah, all in one day, and now we're now we're just <laughs> it'll last no, for another day. No? no, but it was it was like a Houston winter, is what I'm saying. Like it's uh-huh. it, it was cold. Yeah. It was yeah. hot. It was, it was seventy cold. degrees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, what I miss about Houston is this is maybe not maybe not be such a short answer, but I like how open it is. You can go there and and it, there's just kind of an openness to the art scene, to the writing scene. I, I know that there is a hierarchy, but it, it's not as closed as huh. it is here in, in Boston, huh. to, to my in my experience. Mm-hmm. And we have so, Whataburger. 
and you have Whataburger, <laughs> and you have fantastic food. The last I just was yes, in Houston yes. recently, and my God, I mean, I mean, no contest, right? No contest. No contest. No contest. The food here stinks. Yeah. <laughs> no, really. I feel like it always tries to be foody and sophisticated, and it just. Boston. <laughs> if you could change one thing about the small press publication experience, what would it be? And what what's the best thing about working with an indie press? The positive the positive aspect of it was that I didn't ever feel that I was being just forgotten by the press. Mm-hmm. And that was a good feeling. I have to say that I had to do all the publicity, mm-hmm. all the marketing for the book basically on my own, although they were generous in some respects. But I think, you know, to boil it down, the the drawbacks were distribution and, and getting respect for, you know, to get into festivals or even get the, the book in bookstore. Right. Know. Right. Yeah. It's a trade-off, unfortunately, in a lot of ways and with a lot of, a lot of presses to be sure. Yes. Yes. But I think it's important to talk about. So I appreciate your, your honesty to be sure. Our last and final question is an important one. Astros or Red Sox? Yes. Astros. <laughs> not, not, there's not even a, no hesitation there. Uh, I mean, Living in Boston has not made me a Sox fan. <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear it. Well, Tom, it's been wonderful to uh, have you on the show, and, and we appreciate all of your time and really appreciated the opportunity to read your work and look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Well, I so appreciate you having me on the show. I really do. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. I want to know what's what, what comes out next, so keep us informed if you would. I definitely will, yes. And I gotta leave with Great. the Astros sound effects. Right Effing <laughs> Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fu Lu. Shakespeare on all yeah. our guests. Yes, that's right. That would be an awful podcast. That would be an awful podcast. Just please recite your favorite monologues. You know who I am. You know I can't let you slide through.